Welcome to the Security Studies Podcast at Georgetown University. Thanks for tuning in. For episode 42, I met with Professor Christine Fair to discuss her new course offering, Irregular Warfare in Film. We open up with an overview of the course and what inspired Professor Fair to create it. We then go into how Professor Fair teaches students how to read film and begin developing key media literacy skills. For example, Professor Fair leverages Road Siler's MAPS protocol, that's Mode, Audience, Purpose, and Situation, to help her students view a film critically. We then take the film The Deer Hunter, a film featured in her course, to discuss some of its content and the lessons that we can gain from it. Lastly, we discuss racism and allegory in the 2000s film District 9, about how aliens stranded over Johannesburg become earthly refugees. I hope you enjoy this episode featuring Professor Christine Fair. You lead an interesting life. And I gotta find humor in this stuff. In an interesting course. Do you want to dive into <laughs> Sure, it? let's try this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm here with Professor Christine Fair to discuss her course, Irregular Warfare in Film. It's a new course offering at SSP uh, that I'm really excited to have you on the, on the podcast for. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, and we should also mention this delicious whiskey that we are sipping. Yep, it's Nika Coffee Grain Whiskey. It's a Japanese whiskey. Uh, you should get paid for that, by the way. You're actually hosting me. We're at your house. Uh, <laughs> but you brought the whiskey. In the so. pleasant company of your three dogs. So if you hear panting in the background, that's, yep, that's that. what that's from. Irregular warfare in film. Uh, can you provide an overview of the course and what inspired you to bring this unique offering to SSP? So I think the basic impetus was to be completely blunt. This is realization that um, we don't do a lot of critical thinking, education, or skills development in the American educational system. The fact that we live in a period where we have people saying, no, no, this isn't a lie. It's an alternative fact. is an interesting time. Um, as a scholar, as an educator, as a citizen. But this actually masks, I think, a much more nuanced question. Like, what is genuinely a fact? Like, how do we actually know things? If we're thinking about the historical record, we only see things that have been preserved, that have been written by specific people. Uh, I study South Asia. There's not a lot of history written by females of low caste, right? So it's a very specific kind of preservation of the historical record. Like if we were to talk about, say, paleontology, which is like, I think, a really good example in the biological sciences, if we were to look at the fossil record liberally, we would conclude there are these expanses of time where there's a proliferation of flora and fauna, and then nothing happened. And then there'd be another period of growth. But what's actually, so, the, and there's a debate about how we read that, right? But if you actually think about, in fact, uh, I have a collection of some of my favorite fossils, the likelihood that certain kinds of animals and certain kinds of tissue is going to be preserved, it's really, really rare, right? So I collect, and I shit you not, I'm making a pun, coprolites, which are fossilized poos. Because... <laughs> Think about how improbable it is that a turtle takes a dump, 
10, 20 million years ago. And here it is, right? So if we were to interpret this record literally, um, we would have a lot of problems understanding the way in which life progressed on this planet. And the historical record is the same way. Certain events are preserved because they're written down. Certain events are preserved because they were written down on certain kinds of technology that happen to survive different kinds of apocal acts of destruction, right? So what is a fact and what isn't a fact, I think is actually a really interesting fact, or, or, you know, a, a source of inquiry. And um, most of us are going to get our knowledge from conflicts from film. Right? We're not reading about this. The way in which we consume information has completely changed since, since I was uh, in high school, even in graduate school. So I thought that it would be, A, important to introduce this methodology of thinking critically about a medium that most of us engage the most, right? And um, war films, there's always a war film. War films generally do well, and we will passively learn about our conflicts from these films. And if you look at the, at the post 9-11 period alone, look at the proliferation of war films. Most of the people who are going to be looking at or watching a war film about Afghanistan were very, very young when 9-11 happened, right? So that was sort of the impetus, was critical thinking more generally, but then really honing in on this media where most of us spend our time living. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think the course goes beyond just looking at the literature and opens us up to film which as a student seems like a really cool opportunity actually your course includes supplementary readings yes. along with the films to, to provide some background so you know so some students think the course might be like a fluff course but unlike a regular SSP course there's three kinds of intellectual activities that students have to do and the the first thing is you have to learn the grammar of a film right so for example um there are certain tricks of films that make us have a relationship to the thing that we're seeing that happens subconsciously we don't even we don't even realize it which is what makes it so powerful is that these Things are happening, and there's usually a science behind it. At this point, films are a science, and they know how to make us feel a certain way. Commercials do it, right? They know how to elicit a sentiment. And if we're not aware of this science, we are constantly um, potentially being due. So here's a really good example of how a film makes someone look heroic or alternatively frightening is the angle. So if you have a low angle, and by the way, 13-year-olds figure this out with selfies. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they know if you do this, you look like a blimp. <laughs> if you do this, you look like you might be, you know, anorexic. Um, but when you have a low angle film, for example, with um, someone like a combatant, they look extra combatantly, right? Yeah. Because their size is mm -hmm. exaggerated. Alternatively, if you want to make the, the foe of the combatant 
look unmenacing or disempowered, you do a high angle shot where what you actually see is them in this diminished form. If you want to make the, the viewer feel like they're omnipotent, you used to do a crane shot, right? And um, one, a very powerful scene uh, is in Taxi Driver, if you've seen it, where after all of this chaos, we are given privilege to a view of the destruction that would not exist. None of us would actually be able to see this. And what it's doing is it's panning across the room and we actually see, for example, structural elements of the ceiling. So we're basically being given this panoptic view, which would ordinarily be reserved for a deity. Yeah. Um, now you see this very popularly done with drones, right? And so we the first, so one element of the class is just deconstructing how these films make us feel things through this imagery. How they combine soundtracks, right? And it's not just the music, but there's just some films where, you know, for crying out loud, you turn the damn, I don't need to feel extra stressed out. Like, you're, you're literally chasing someone with, like, a chainsaw. I also don't need to have music, which causes me to have, you know, a coronary. But then, so there's the, there's the cueing of the music with the scene and then the words. So, but our brains are amazing processors, we don't have to think about all of these things. Our brain produces the meaning from all of these sensory inputs. And what I want to do in the class is stop. Let's look at the scene. Let's look at how the angles construct good and bad. Let's talk about how the music causes us to have a certain set of feelings about the individuals. And then what are the lyrics telling us? Because our brain is doing all of this subconsciously. And I want to basically stop that unconscious process and think very formally about how we are being manipulated. Yeah. In films, they do. They manipulate who's, the, who's right and wrong, what's heroic. They love to manipulate. Um, they love to give this idea that America is like this kumbaya melting pot. Like, look at World War II movies. You get the idea that, that there was no race tensions at a time when lynchings are happening all over the country. So films are, like, not only are, are films representing history, they're also representing and repackaging history, consonant with the objectives of the director. Yeah. And that's something that you highlight in the course, is yeah. as you go through the films, you're looking at perspectives. Exactly. And, and one other um, element that comes to mind, too, is color, where I think in, in your classic war film I, like Saving Private Ryan it's almost yeah. an absence of color yes. it's like shades of gray exactly. right? it's just destruction right. you know it's it's nothingness right um, or you know a scene on a Miami beach has a hot orange filter exactly. on it to make it so hot and, yep. and sweaty exactly. it's really um, you know um, there's a great TV series that does this really well um, The Spy with Sasha Baron Cohen I haven't seen it it's totally worth a. It, it's just if you don't like Sasha Baron Cohen, then you're not gonna like it. But if you like Sasha Baron Cohen, and people seem to be like, we are bimodally distributed. I happen to love Sasha Baron Cohen. My husband hates him, um, so I love this. My husband's like, oh, another way. Um, but in Sasha Baron Cohen in the Spy, he plays an Israeli spy who infiltrates into Syria, and where. Whereas in Israel, he's like, you know, what a, a dorky little intelligence guy is. And he's also a Sephardi. So he's dealing with all these race issues. 
and he's looked down upon. And he and his wife, they're not well paid. They're not living a glamorous life. But when he is in Syria, he is the shit. He is the man. He is the center of attention. And the way in which the film shows you the joy that he experiences being this alter ego. At some point he forgets who he is. When he's in Syria, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's, it's a vibrant, it's colored, it's, his life has texture. You can see how he dresses, you can see his makeup. When he goes to Israel, not only is it in like this really dull coloration, you, things are just not in focus. Hmm. And so they use that color to let you empathize with his different emotional states. Yeah. And it's frustrating for his wife because his wife lives in the uncolored world. Right. Right. So the color is, um, but you know what? It's funny. We're very visual. We tend to get the color. Most of my students, when people, when the films are playing around with color, they almost always get that. Yeah. Because we are such visual people. Where they tend to, there, I'm trying to think of some other things that, that they, especially the foreign films, because the, the foreign films, because not only do I want people to think about how does American cinema portray this conflict, I want them to also see how foreign film industries depict the exact same conflict. And that actually was the challenge in putting this course together. Because A, you have to teach them the film literacy, you have to teach them the conflict, and then you have to teach them the text, which is the film. Yeah. And most of the units are around two texts that I've put in deliberate contrast. So, like, let's say The Deer Hunter. When it came out, people were up in arms. They called it racist. They protested um, the various Academy Award nominations. But when you watch the Korean film, White Badge, which is about the South Korean participation in Vietnam, which most people don't even know they did, 300,000 South Koreans participated in Vietnam. They lost about 5,800 people many thousands, tens of thousands more were injured. The ways in which the Vietnamese are depicted is the same. So, now this doesn't mean it's not racist. Maybe the South Koreans are racist towards the Vietnamese. But what it does mean is that there's nothing unique about the way in which American films across all of these, these Vietnam films depict the North Vietnamese. They are remarkably consistent. Even across other film industries in other countries, it's remarkably consistent. Okay, which is, whether that's interesting or not, depends on whether or not you find the race question interesting in these films. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's an underlying theme across most Vietnam films, is that it's racist. Right. And so that we, almost every film we conclude, is this a racist film? <laughs> And even if it's not explicitly racist, um, war films are particularly cruel to women. Right? Women have, A, because of the nature of war, or, or war as we believe it is, women either foreshadow death. So if you're married, you're very likely to die. Or we're hookers, right? And um, like in the Vietnamese genre, in the genre of the Vietnam War, Vietnamese women have a very limited repertoire. They almost always speak this annoying, unrealistic pigeon of like French, English, and Vietnamese. And they all have virtually the same vocabulary. (laughs) Um, 
they're often lenses of racism themselves. So, like, for example, in Platoon, there's a scene where a Vietnamese prostitute won't have sex with an African-American soldier because she intimates that his penis is too large. Right? So they're these... They're the... Women, they serve not positive roles in the film. Like, yeah. almost never. Whereas, when you look at the white badge, the Korean film... Women have a very different role. Like, the prostitutes uh, have a lot of agency in a way in which you don't see mm-hmm. in these American films. So the more you expose students to different, literally different takes of the same war, you learn a, more about the grammar of American film, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? You How do you teach yeah. the... the how do you teach students to read a film? Are there uh, resources that you draw from to teach a, a new film critic? <laughs> so, so if you look at the canvas, and I tell students, do not be freaked out by the reading. Right, The reading is there. If you already know about a conflict, skin it. If what you don't know is about how this film was created, what's its market constraints, what was the director's vision, then concentrate on that stuff that you don't know but all of all of the canvas readings are of of a couple of types one what's the nuts and bolts of this conflict like why who was there like what what was the fact so that students can then objectively say how does this film deal with the empirics of the case right right which is something that we do anyways or we should be doing as as students like establishing the facts exactly before diving into the, the narrative so if you don't know that, then the movie will be lost because movies, like novels, like anything, the the creator wants to say something about the facts. And in doing so, they may not be truthful. Like, for example, The Deer Hunter, for the art of the story, they introduce this idea of, of the Viet Cong forcing their prisoners to engage in Russian roulette. If you look at all of the historical criticism of the film, people go batshit crazy. But the Viet Cong didn't do that. Okay, they did other things, like throw grenades um, into close areas where women and children are living. But Russian roulette, a bridge too far. So from my point of view, is like really that's where you're going with this. Um, but So part of it is like, what were the facts of the case? Two, what's the literary criticism about this? Like, was this a Western? Was this an opera? what did people observe about the way the characters related to the conflict to each other and to the movie, right? So this is, um, so they're learning about the conflict, they're learning how to read a film, and they're learning about that film. So it's a lot, actually, to expect of the students. So yeah. we, we go into this actually very slowly. So I have this worksheet called MAPS, which is, you know, essentially, what was the mode? And... In, for some things, the mode is pretty straightforward. It's a movie, but it doesn't just ask about the movie. It asks about um, how does it use, how does it combine imagery and music? Um, what Was it meant to be DVD? Was it meant to be on a big screen? Most of us are not going to see the movie as it was meant to be seen. We're going to be seeing the TV. And so that, that redoing of the film for a small screen actually does have implications for how we view it. Right? So if you were watching, I get a major Hitchcock film where 
he was really um, messing around with our feelings. Seeing it on a big screen is a lot more emotive than yeah. watching it on your computer or mm-hmm. your phone. Right? So and it's the sound, too, right? The, it's, of a theater. Well, yeah, right. It's, uh, uh, and also, oh, by the way, um, that's the other thing to pay attention to is like the introduction of colorization, the introduction of different sound technologies. Like Dolby surround sound has, and then of course 3D. That just changes the whole experience because it allows the the cinematographers to tap into parts of our brains in ways that they couldn't before, right? And we're also very oral. Obviously, we're not dogs, but um, the way the the only thing that they could probably manipulate next would be if they were to take advantage advantage of aromatics, which I I thoroughly expect some version of smell vision, right? Because it's it's actually very easy to do. It's inexpensive if you were to find some way of doing it in a way that was controlled, but that would depend a lot upon the space. So the mode interrogates all of the, these aspects of, of how the content is delivered. And then the audience. The audience is important because when the director, like for example, we start with this music video, Three Doors Down. Three Doors Down... Does, did this thing, it was for the Army National Guard called Citizen Soldier. So it masquerades as a music video, but it's actually an Army recruitment tool and it's introduced right before the economic downturn when the Army Guard is having massive problems meeting its, its accession targets. So it looks like a movie video, but where it was shown tells you about who the audience was. And the mm. audience was mostly people who were eligible to be recruited by the Army National Guard. Or people like me who went with my um, nephews um, to cultivate a sympathy towards the Guard so I wouldn't say, oh, you're not going to go into the Guard. You're just going to get shot up, right? So either to create um, a positive feeling amongst influencers or amongst people who would be directly targeted. Um, And then, of course, there's the purpose, right? What is the, the... so, for example, if you're thinking about a Vietnam film, because we do a lot of Vietnam films, is the purpose to educate about the war? Is it to educate about the implications of the war? Like, for example, um, Rambo, First Blood, that is about veterans' PTSD. We didn't call it PTSD, but that's what that movie is about. Mm-hmm. Deer Hunter is, is also um, about that in inconsiderable measure is the movie to basically you think that the history has has just been wrong like an example of this is that when we do the discussion of the drones there's a big debate on how you talk about drones right is it is it the the joystick killer which so many people erroneously think it is or is it a much more complicated weapon system that involves much more human judgment than the media um, typically records. And then um, I just completely spaced out on the S. Situation. Ah, yes, the situation. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I got notes. Um, yeah, you got notes. Um, yeah, I'm not using notes. <laughs> but the, so the, the situation kind of pulls all of these things together, right? So how are we, how are we consuming it? What's the context of our consuming it? What's the political environment? This is really important. So MASH. MASH was new MASH, right? Yeah. 
it was technically about Korea. Right. But it was about Vietnam. Right? So it's not uncommon that we will have a film that claims to address a certain set of circumstances, but for whatever reason, it's impolitic to do so. Mm -hmm. And so it formally addresses something else. Like, here's a really good example. Um, It's very interesting that post 9-11, the films that have done the best have been about World War II. There's a reason for that. That was the good war. Americans, we haven't won a war since World War II, with the exception of the Gulf War, which, if you want to call that a war, right? Yeah. So... The, the situation speaks to the political environment. It will bring in things like, okay, we're watching this World War II, and we, this World War II film, and it looks as if uh, African Americans are serving side by side with Ameri- uh, white Americans. Not true. Absolutely, it is a lie. And why are we doing that? Because the Russians took explicit advantage of our racism to say this American dream freedom, justice for all, this is a bunch of horseshit. And so, and of course with World War II, World War II period movies, there was a very explicit collaboration between DOD and Hollywood. And we were putting out there these movies, oh no, no, you totally kumbaya. But if you went and you looked at what's happening in the United States, we had lynchings, we had race riots, it was anything but kumbaya. So when we think about the situation, we're trying to bring in what were the the politics surrounding this film? Yeah. Right? And then how we interpret that film today would be very different than how people would have interpreted it then. Right? So if we're looking at like Breaker Morant, which is one of my favorite films, is about these Australians um, at the turn of the century who were basically sacrificed for Great Britain because they were they were considered unequal colonials. When we look at it today, we will interpret this with through the lens of our contemporary experiences. Colonialism is really bad. Racism is really bad. But if you were an Australian watching this film at, at that particular time, you would be watching this film at a time when Australia was basically trying to come into its own in the international system. And you would see this as a story of Australian independence and Australian vigor and basically Australian pluckiness. Mm -hmm. And we can never reproduce what the original Australian audience saw, but we can try to be cognizant of how does our reception of this film differ based upon the events that have happened since that film was made and where we are seeing it versus how an Australian first watching that film may have viewed it. Yeah. So situation is, it's really, it's probably the most complicated of the elements, and it requires people to hold multiple time periods and geographical locations in their head at the same time. Yeah. And to think about how do these different things, these different situations in which the film was made, viewed, and consumed, produce different meanings. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, for the, I was just thinking about the music video. You mentioned that it was around the time of the economic downturn. Yes. And that, it, that's such an interesting perspective, like, and something that's so super important to think about 
<laughs> like the timing of things. So, in in fairness, I got the inside story on this because my brothers are army driver recruiters. Okay. And I knew from beginning to end oh, about okay. this, yeah. this video. And at the time I was at the Rand Corporation, um, well, I at the Rand Corporation, I, I'd worked on a lot of um, military recruitment. So, but here's the thing about that. If you watch that video, and you're of my generation, I challenge you. I, ch- I challenge you to not be moved. And I will, I, I have no shame. I cry every time I've seen it. And I've seen it countless times. And the reason is, because I'm the influencer, right? I'm not the one they're recruiting into boots. I'm the person that if my cousin, if my son, if I had one, or my daughter said, I want to join, I'm going to say yes. That, that's yep. what they're doing to me. Yep. But what I see in that film is that I see my entire family, which is an army family, serving. I, I will remember the time when my brothers were deployed to Iraq and how grateful I was that they fit that they came back. And that, that, even though I know just about everything about that music video, and I am the most cynical consumer of it, I'll sit there and cry like a damn baby. Yeah. That's how effective it is. Uh, For a person of a certain, like, of my generation, it just punches us in the gut. Do you mean cynical consumer or, like, critical consumer? Well, I'll say both. Yeah. Right? Because the more you know about how the sausage is made, the less you want to eat the sausage. Yeah. I know how that sausage is made, yeah. and I still, like, happily eat that sausage. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a delicious sausage, <laughs> even though I know it's made yeah. out of poo. It's yeah. a delicious sausage. <laughs> so, you cover um, different film topics, and I think there are, are there roughly two films per yeah, topic. in principle. Well, I'll yeah. cover the topics really quickly just to give our listeners an idea of, of um, which irregular wars we're talking about. Uh, there's the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, uh, the First Indochina War, which is the, the French experience in Vietnam, the Second Indochina War, which is the American experience in Vietnam, the Soviet War in Afghanistan, you cover gender and war in film, which you alluded to briefly earlier, um, and I think that's a really valuable... And race. Race is constantly imbricated through this. We can't yeah. escape race in these films. Right. Um, there's the global war on terrorism, uh, broken up into Iraq and then Afghanistan, and then the, the drone wars. So it's, you know, dating back from 1879 to today yeah, it's it's a huge scope there's a lot of work for the students as i said film theory understanding the conflict and then engaging the text which is the films it's yeah. it's a lot so i'm a student in your class and we're on a given week if we can uh i'd like if we can pick a week or mm-hmm. and a film and we cover kind of uh how you would expect your students to experience and kind of think critically about the film of, of that week. Sure. So, like, let's take the the, um, the British colonial wars in Asia. So, the two films... Well, no, let's, no, let's, let's do The Deer Hunter. Okay. I mean, it, it's a similar logic. So, the, uh, right up front, this was the hardest syllabus I've ever made. It, it, it was incredibly challenging. Because, again, you have to find readings that will very quickly get to the point of the conflict. And honestly, the more 
complicated conflict, the less likely you're going to have a concise reading about it. Yeah. Right. So just curating something that's accessible to the students, because I, you can't, you can't become a master of all of these conflicts in a semester. You just need to know when is this film taking a liberty with the facts? Like what, what are the nuts and bolts of the case? And so just finding those readings, that, that was a, a challenge. Yeah. Find, here's the other problem. Literary criticism is written in a way which is meant to be asinine. I mean, I will just say this bluntly. Um, they know nothing about conflict in many cases. So I was there was a this uh, movie called Breaker Moran. It's about the Australians mm-hmm. um, and the Boer War. And in the in the course of the dialogue in the justification justification for how the the Australians they were they were a special unit that was designed to basically deal with guerrilla warfare right and so they said look you know there are no rules here we we uh, we apply rule three not three applying to the ammunition that was used to dispatch the boars the film critic literally spent time looking for rule 303 in British law. Uh, right? And you're just kind of like, are you kidding? Or it'll use a vocabulary which is completely inaccessible, this postmodernist vocabulary for which you need a decoder ring. Right? So you also then have to find literature about the film that's going to be accessible to our students. Yeah. And by the nature of film criticism, that tends to be of a fairly small set. Then there's the literature about the film itself, right? Which becomes more difficult when we're veering outside of English. So there's lots of stuff, for example, about um, Chimino and the Deer Hunter, but there's considerably less about the film, um, the Korean counterpart that I've paired it with, because it's not in English, and I don't know Korean. So, for example, this past week, we, we paired The Deer Hunter, which is this three-hour operatic western about these three men from a very tightly integrated Russian Orthodox community in Pennsylvania going to Vietnam. And it's paired with this Korean film called The White Badge. The reason why they're paired up is that, um, so one of the central themes of the deer hunter is this notion of Russian roulette. So these three guys, they go to Vietnam, they're taken captive by the Viet Cong, and they are forced to play Russian roulette with each other. And this scrambles their brains. Um, One person will come out of that massively disabled. The other person will come out of that physically intact, but uh, emotionally a wreck. And then the hero played by De Niro, he's, he's the classic Western hero. He's a stoic. He fixes everything. He's a celibate. He doesn't get into trouble. He just stays on target. And so when he gets home, he tries to fix things. And he realizes that his friend is, uh, is actually playing Russian roulette for a gambling ring. And he's this American and people are making lots of money off of him. And he's completely out of his mind. There's a point where you can see the heroin tracks in his arms. Yeah. 
And when Michael De Niro goes back to retrieve his friend Nick, who's played by Christopher Walken, the way he brings him back into the present is that he references an event in the second part of the movie, which is the hunt, where De Niro is his very principal hunter. He pretty much has contempt for everyone else around him. He's just a bunch of jokers, with the, ex- with the exception of Nick. And his whole thing is you have to kill the deer with one shot. It's one shot. And he's just irritated with people not understanding this discipline. So he says to Nick, remember the one shot? Now, it's Russian roulette. It's one shot. (laughs) Your face decided in one shot or not. And Christopher Walken is brought back into the moment. He, He remembers who Mike B is. And he says, yeah, yeah, one shot. And he kills himself. In the white badge, there's this inner, well, what we call intertextuality, where this film clearly references the other film. So the plot structure of white badges are different. The plot structure of white badge is there's this journalist, he serves in in Vietnam, and he's serializing and writing a novel. It's actually deeply autobiographical, but it picks up on this one shot scene and this pistol. And at some point, you'll see in the background this reference, the movie theater um, advert in Korean to the deer hunter with the scene. And so this pistol becomes this recurring motif in the film. And instead of what happened to the deer hunter where Mikey brings Nick back into the moment and Nick shoots himself, in this film, the journalist actually shoots this very traumatized veteran that he can no longer help. So they tell similar story about this distress unit in Vietnam. They very clearly white badge has picked up on themes of the deer hunter, but they're telling a very different story through different semiotics of these different film industries. And besides that specific instance, what, can you share about the differing perspectives, right, from the American, from the Korean? Or maybe this is uh, uh, an intimate part of the course and we don't have to go No, there. no, no. I mean, so, so the thing about a typical war film per genre is that it's always about an actual event that happened, right? So this is distinct from, say, a magical battle, or uh, which is a fantasy, or... Yeah. Battling with Martians, which is a different genre. So a classic American war film is about a thing that actually happened. Um, It may not involve necessarily real people, but it it involves a genuine battle, which is verifiable. Like, we can actually go and we can compare the film with what actually happened. Everything else is up for grabs. So, for example, why do they fight? That will be a terrain over which a film will debate. Why are we fighting this war? Mm. What's honor? Who is honorable? And why is that person honorable? Was the war justified? Was this a just war? Was it a just war in principle, but not as it was executed? These really intimate questions about the conflict in the combatants are posed in varying degrees by these different films. So, the deer hunter, if you go back and you look at the contemporary... Now, again, let's be really honest about who, who we are as scholars. Like, we do security studies for a living. We're not film... I'm not a film critic, right? I, my worldview on these things are, are very different. So, one thing that you don't ever see in a Vietnam film 
is a justification for the war. All of the Vietnam War films are, this was a terrible, terrible thing, and it was a mistake, and um, it was brutal, and we conducted ourselves terribly. And I'm not going to take an opinion. There is, a, there is an alternative point of view, and actually the French went through this after their conflict. Um, after the communist revolutions that swept across Southeast Asia, the boat people, the atrocities in Cambodia, French came out, French military commanders, French veterans, and that's also why you had this spurt of French films when you did, like around um, the making of Dien Bien Phu, there was Indochine, there was Shock Troops, there was, um, um, I, don't, I forget how it's translated, the, the 314 platoon. But people said, look, you know, you can complain about what we did and why we did it, but what happened afterwards was worse. Right? Now, now that's, an, that's a, an empirical question that we as Americans never engage in, right? Whether what we did was good, bad, or indifferent, we never talk about what happened after we left and the atrocities. But the French film culture did have that discussion. So these yeah. are the kinds of things that we talk about in the class. Is that a cultural quality? I don't know because I'm not French. Yeah. But <laughs> we, we so we can't say why. We can only say what. Right. And we can say that in French, in French cinema, they could ask this question, and they could say, "Was this war as bad as what came after?" But you will not find an American film about Vietnam that asks that question. There's only one film that was made during the Vietnam War, and that was The Green Berets, and that was, you know, it, it gets made fun of in other Vietnam films. Like, in Platoon, it's a source of jokes. Oh, really? Right? Which is another thing I like about these, these, this genre, is that they reference each other in this intertextual way, in a way that's actually quite clever. Yeah. Right? It's the way a good author will do it. Like a good author will echo insights of, of authors that influence them. Yeah. Little subtleties. Subtleties, yeah. You covered a few of them just briefly, um, but I want to kind of go in greater length on some of the essay topics that you ask your students to write about. Yes, and I'm grading the first batch right now, and they have really done a great job. I'm so enjoying their papers. I'm That's loving great. it. So uh, a, a couple of them are heroism, as you mentioned, justness of war, as you mentioned, history and film, women at war. And the la there's the last one, which is almost like a bonus. It's <laughs> I love this one. Racism and allegory in the film District 9. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you want to talk about that sure, one? Sure, whatever. Okay. You're, you're the boss. You're, you, you're running the show. <laughs> not at all. Can, can you cover the film first? Like, what's the plot of the film? Yeah, so the plot. First, I love the plot for when, whenever you see alien movies they're almost always centered on the United States. And with the exception of that movie by M. Night Shyamalan, I really dislike his movies. I, I loathe them. They're just... Ugh. But um, with the exception of the one movie that he made, uh, if an alien came down here, the alien would ask, why are aliens only coming to North America? 
think about <laughs> War of the Worlds. If you think of the alien movie that they didn't plop down here. Then there's the crop circles in the UK, and then you've got M. Night Shyamalan, who actually has aliens popping up in India. Within the name, they come here in the UK. They don't they don't go anywhere. And of course, in M. Night Shyamalan's film, they go to Mexico. So what, what he does is he like he globalizes this whole issue of like aliens popping up. But in American films, they only come here. Yeah. Which is like totally weird. Like Independence Day. Independence Day, like really? They <laughs> they come here, right? They, yeah. they just have this bone to pick with Americans. So this whole genre of alien films kind of pisses me off because it is so quintessentially American-centric, right? It is You don't get more American-centric than, than the alien genre. So what I like about District 9 is that it decenters the American centrism of alien movies. And it also decenters the inherent hostility that the aliens have because always the aliens come here they're either thinking about wiping us off the planet or we provoke them and they have to do it and they have to self-defense. Yeah. So, and, and of course, in M. Night Shyamalan's film, they come with the intention of wiping us out, right? And, but in the way that he does, he always have these gimmicks. It's something that you set up before you thought it was important. Actually, it becomes important. Remember the water all over the room with the little girl? He, the father gets really irritated because the little daughter keeps leaving glasses of water everywhere. And then they learn that the aliens hate water. And so the fact that she has water, like, literally everywhere in the house becomes a boon. Oh, thank God my daughter, you know, didn't panic herself. Because it turns out aliens really hate water. They came to the one planet that actually is known for this substance that it turns out they hate. <laughs> and, like, every house has a water hose, you know. I can't stand his movies. But anyway, so so District 9 decenters both of these things. Because District 9, they're not coming here necessarily to destroy us. What actually happens is that the spaceship hovers over Johannesburg, which is just this really refreshing counterpoint to Independence Day. We're, like, hovering over D.C. and just right over the White House. <laughs> and so, um, but what happens is a piece of their spaceship falls. And they can't, they can't go home. And they're up there in the spaceship. They're just starving, right? And it also just takes a piss out of the UN, and you know, I work for the United Nations, and nothing makes me more contemptuous of, of inefficacy of organizations than the United Nations. So, some very well intended do gooders, they go up and they see, oh my God, there are these aliens, and they're like starving, and we have to do something. So, they confine them to this area, and they look like prawns, and, and people use the racial stereotype prawns to describe them but this actually was is an allegory because in apartheid south africa there was an area referred to by the number nine that was reserved for african-americans right and so the whole point about the film is the aliens are just trying to get home they just want to get their spaceship fixed and we're kind of as one happens with a large refugee community i'm thinking for example like the rohingya in bangladesh the generosity and the empathy of the host community begins to wear away, and their the refugee sites begin to host criminality. It's an incredibly accurate story of what happens when you have refugees. Like first, there's this outpouring of sympathy. Oh, this is terrible. Then they become villainized, and then we we want to like super police them. Yeah, and. Um, 
And then one of the, the UN employees, who's actually kind of a racist jerk, he turns out he finds this fluid that's important to getting the spaceship fixed, but it also turns him into a prawn. <laughs> and so much of the movie is him uh, turning into this prawn and the way his very racist in-laws deal with him, but his wife still loves him. And he was in any event a duffer to begin with. So there's a couple of interesting, so the most obvious question is, is this an allegory for South Africa? But it's also an allegory for how we treat communities that are in precarity, right? Like, like the Rohingya, the, the Syrian refugees. But then the more interesting questions actually turns upon the protagonist himself. And is this blackface? And so there's this scholarly literature that argues that, in fact, he is blackface and that this is a very insidious film. And, of course, the reason for that is it's what we see of South Africa is only white South Africa. Right? And then he makes this interesting pronouncement because it's all told in, in this um, almost spinal tap-like mockumentary where he's giving all of these interviews. And he makes a statement, well, I, I, I'm as black as any African, right? Which is a, a very provocative statement for him to make, being that he's a very white South African, and then in the context of the film. So there's different ways that students can slice this as allegory. Yeah. There's one, how do we think about South Africa being represented by white people? There's the whole notion of how we, how is, is this movie referencing how Africans were treated in South Africa, how we treat communities of precarity. But I also just really like how it decenters the whole genre of an alien movie coming to the United States to destroy us. Yeah, and the, I mean, the aliens are vulnerable from the get-go. From the get-go. Like, they break down. Yeah. Their, their spaceship <laughs> breaks down yes. over, over Johannesburg. And they have a voice. Like, we actually, we, I mean, the, the aliens actually have a voice. Like, we get, we get insights into the, to the society, right? You've got this, you've got this dad and this son, and all he wants to do is get out. And he's just telling us, saying, you know, keep your head down. And then we also have, like, this, you know, this gangstery kind of thing. Um, and then we also have this really maniacal, military industrial complex that wants to weaponize the the chemical that, that turns our protagonist into a prawn because they have weapons that can only be used by someone who's genetically a prawn. And so you remember when they capture him, they don't want him to die because they want to harness this um, hybrid genetics for the purposes of weaponization. Yeah. I love the movie. It, yeah. So I, I hope that some of the students will write about this particular movie. But it requires them to watch a movie that's not in the syllabus. Because this is not a movie that we, that we formally watch right. together. It's another film. Yeah. And it's um, it, the people that take on this topic will be, I think, the braver of the lot. Because all the other topics we will have covered pretty thoroughly in our discussions. Like, how, how, is, how is heroism uh, depicted? What is honorable? Like these things we cover pretty thoroughly in the discussions, but this is just going to be right out there. I have to ask, what was uh, the rationale 
behind focusing on irregular war as opposed to more conventional, like the big wars? So that's actually easy because the problem with the big wars is that they are marred by propaganda yeah. because it's explicit collaboration with DOD and Hollywood. And so then that puts another onus upon the students. And just the sheer amount of content, right? Well, yeah. So there's a sheer amount of content. Um, I also think that these are conflicts in our program that are probably fairly well covered. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, no one's learning about the Zulu War. Right. Right. Very few people are learning about the French Indochina War. Unless you take like a South Asia class, you're not going to learn about the British Empire. So I also thought, so the complexity of bringing the Great Wars in, just it, it, it seemed like in terms of scoping the class and what I was asking of the students to do, scooping that out seemed like a more sensible thing. Like, so this would be a class if you were really interested in asymmetric warfare, right? Yep. And you, you wouldn't get that. And if I, if I, and then the other thing, like how much I, 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 you could do, in fact, some people do do, cause this is not unique. This is, might be different for SSP, but other programs, it's not unique at all. Um, if you go online, you'll see lots of people are using film as a subject of understanding conflict. It's not unique at all. It's just unique for us. Is it? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's unique to SSP. Yeah, but you know, um, so I was talking, we were just like hanging out. Over a year, I try to do um, my own schooling, right? Because otherwise, we live a really long time. You just got to keep up. So a number of years ago, I did a course sponsored by SICE, and it's for faculty to learn new pedagogical techniques. Because, you know, no one ever teaches us to be teachers. Like, and I, as a graduate student, I was never a TA. I had full funding. So you don't, you're never taught how to do this. Right. Which is really bizarre. Because I couldn't, I couldn't teach the seventh grade without getting a teaching degree. I, I couldn't teach South Asia to seventh graders without having a degree that says, yes, I know how to teach. So it's really strange how higher education works. Yeah. Right? We're never taught how to do this. Some people are good. Some people aren't. Um, there's no, like, boot camp. Here's the elements of good teaching. So I took this class, basically, to be a better teacher. And they introduced us to how, how do you think about scenario building, um, taking students on actual trips, like the whole notion of a field ride or a staff ride, and then introducing film to your syllabus. And um, I had been for years interested in this and also novels because I did my PhD on terrorism and their use of popular culture. So this is sort of like my root going back to my roots. And so that it just took a long time to incubate because this was not an easy syllabus to put together. Right. It just isn't. And trying to find the right readings for our students. And then, <laughs> and also for me, because I, I don't have a lot of patience for bullshit. And there's a lot of literature out there that is just, um, bullshit is being complimentary. Yeah. Right. Sure. You can, as a, to quote a colleague of mine, you can make a living complicating a basic truth. <laughs> a lot of folks really do. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing that makes these films different from these big propaganda films is that the forces of the market are more important to them. Right. 
not only the forces of the market, but also um, there's a lot of this, which is frankly globalism. So one film that we do is called Northwest Frontier. And in the United States, it was called um, Flame Over India. And it was genuine. It was a it was a collaboration between the British and the Americans. So is this a British piece or is it an American piece? But it's really an American piece taking the piss out of British Empire. Hmm. It is very American in its sensibilities and how it mocks the British. Lauren Bacall is the lead actress. And she says ridiculous things. Like, you British can't do anything. You can't undertake the most basic decision without having a cup of tea. Right? Which is, A, what most Americans think of the British. I'm only being partially facetious. But then you can ask some really interesting questions. So would the British have found this also terribly amusing if it weren't this incredibly attractive young actress in her heyday who was white? What if she were an African-American actress? What if she were an, elder, an older woman who was a battle axe? The fact, and I asked my students, I said, think of a battle axe. Who's a contemporary battle axe? By which I mean, you know, a feisty, not terribly attractive, frumpy woman that might beat someone with a frying pan. You can't even think of who that battle axe would be because of the economy of our film. But yeah. how would the British respond to having um, a person of color or a very unattractive older woman mocking these British officers, right? So it's a great film to ask, what if we change this? It's also a great film to ask, you know, what is honor and what is duty? And, and also, this is probably one of the first feminist films. Because this is a woman who chooses, the whole plot is, she's married to this rich doctor, she gets marooned in India, she chooses to stay in India, and she becomes this governor, this governess of this child of this Indian Maharaja that everyone wants to murder and she's a badass. Um, she shoots people, if that is your definition of a badass. But she's deliberately, we are told deliberately that she's from Arizona. She was raised with a, a gun in her hand, but her yeah. father never let her out without a gun. And that plays very nicely with the fact that this is also in the Northwest Frontier Province. So we this tells us immediately that she's comfortable with quote-unquote frontier culture. So it allows us to interrogate how we objectify our frontier culture how the British interrogated their frontier culture, and how the Indians themselves interrogated their frontier culture. So you can have all of these conversations um, at the same time over one film, which is kind of fun. That sounds really cool. You don't have to say that if you don't think it is. I won't. My feelings won't be hurt. No, I mean it. <laughs> but you can imagine, if it weren't Lauren Bacall, that might not go over so well. But there's a whole genre of films at that period, in the interwar period, where you just had these women doing stuff that no woman actually would and they were all played by these incredibly attractive vamps I guess for a lack of a better word which tells you something about who the market thought could get away with these kinds of hijinks yeah right yep so this is your first semester teaching this course yeah <laughs> we hope that it will continue in the future I hope because it took a lot of work to and then, you know, Georgetown's just not situated technologically for this, right? We're just not a school that, that tends to do this, this kind of course. And so um, it's been, I've had to learn a lot of IT tricks. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> like, I'm, like, 
MacGyver now. Yeah. Just bring your own projector. And yeah. I, well, actually, that's been the hardest part, right, is um, finding a way that the students can access these films because they're not, a lot of them are oh, not on, right. you, know, you just can't buy them on Amazon. They're not on Netflix. Yeah. And so the sourcing them, it, uh, yeah, the sourcing of these films had, was its own source of humor and sadness. Yeah. And making it available to all of your students yeah. as well. Yeah, that was... So that they could also source it. Exactly. I mean, that was a pain. But it was worth it. So, I mean, all of those those kinks should be knocked out for next semester. And so it'll be... And then I'm, I'm doing mid-course corrections, talking to students about, is this a reasonable amount of work? Right? Do you sense that it's a lot? It's a, I'm, so, but they don't have to do all of the readings. That's the key. But they have to do all the films, right? And that's the, that's why I tell them the films is the most important thing. Right. And, um, but they seem they seem okay with the films. Yeah. Um, and then so when the workload and so like this week when they had their essays due, we watched one of the films in class. So the films that are like particularly inaccessible, we watch in class together. Yeah. So we watched Zulu in class. Um, so, will, so I play it by ear depending on the workload, but, um, watching it in class is also not passive. Right. Right. Yeah. We spoke a little bit about how this is really like active watching, right? The angle yes. of the shot, the color, Everything. the, the, the sound that's in the soundtrack that's been used. So even my, my poor husband has been subjected to it. Um, cause we, it's in, once you, in court again, actually, Corkin does this great, great job of, of, of teaching you how to talk back to the movies. Um, and so we'll just be sitting here, and my husband's like, oh, I cannot believe they just did that kind of a shot. <laughs> so once you... It, it's like it's like anything. Like, once you learn to talk back to a text, like, if you... It's, I feel bad for my students when I when um, the library gives me a crappy copy for, like, my South Asia class, and I have to copy something from my own library. I'm a very vocal talker backer to the text. Like it's not beyond me to say, bullshit. I call it BSA bullshit alert. <laughs> so it, but I think it's a good habit to just not take things that are told to you at face value, especially, especially in this particular period that we have found ourselves in. Yeah, and that's something you you teach your students in your research seminar. Well, I don't, I haven't, so the, so the research seminar is no longer required. Oh, really? Yeah. But even in the South Asia class, I spend just as much time with them on, let's look at the sources. Right. Like, are these primary sources? Are they secondary? Does this person make an argument? And I'll put deliberately stuff on my syllabus that I think is rubbish. Mm -hmm. So that students will feel comfortable calling something rubbish. Because I find, look, I was a student too. You, you, you're caught between two things, right? You've got more reading than you can ever actually do well, right? That's a that's a existential fate of all students. And so then you're caught talking... You guys know that? I know. <laughs> right? I mean, we were all students. Yeah. Right? We all know this. Yeah. But, um... And I've actually trimmed down my syllabi a lot because I went to the University of Chicago where... Yeah. It was just assumed that you had no life. Right. right? So, but you're caught, as a student, you're caught between, do I read this for what the person is arguing? So I can, like, if someone says, what does this person argue? I can, like, muster. If she's, by the way, you can tell her to knock it off if she's too, it's okay. too in your face. I'm being attacked by two pit bulls right now. <laughs> Actually, 
She's only 7% pitbull. We were lied to. Oh, really? Yeah, but look at that face. Oh, I know. She's very she's, sweet. She's very sweet. So you're, you're caught between, like, do I try to, like, figure out what the argument of this person is? So if, if my professor asked, what does this person argue, you'll have an answer. Or do you spend time deconstructing their bullshit? And it's hard to do both. Yeah. Right? And students, unless they're told that they can talk back to the text, I find at first that very uncomfortable. And so if I put my own stuff on the syllabus, we never discuss it. Because I, I think it's really unfair to ask students to discuss their professor's work. Right. Like, well, how fucking awkward is that? I hated it as a graduate student. Nobody wants to disagree with you to your face. Or even on paper. Yeah, can you imagine? And this comes up at comps, too, right? Like, people are so afraid that what if the person who grades my comps is, like, I don't know, a realist, and I make a non-realist argument. Sure. Like, students are freaked out by this stuff. Yeah. Right? But I told my students, in this film class, I forbid them expressly from freaking out. Because this isn't a class where there's a right answer. Like, there isn't. It, it is, tell me, you looked at this film, you're a thoughtful human being, what meaning did this film produce for you? Yeah. Right? And there's no right answer. You, you literally can't be wrong, right? Yep. If you feel this way about this film, if this film made you feel a certain way about a conflict, you have to tell me why. You have to tell me what that's sort of incumbent upon you is to sort of in fact, that's actually the most... What Cordigan makes this really interesting point. The most interesting paper is when a film gives you an itch that you want to scratch and you don't know why. What is this uncomfort or this, this thing that this film just puts in your lap that you can't figure out? Those are actually the most interesting films. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What is it that's disquieting you about this phone? Yeah. Like, I feel a certain way, and it's a strong feeling. I don't know right. how, how I got here. Exactly. Or maybe you do, but it's it's the film that took you there. Right. Yeah. And unpack that. Like, mm. walk me through. What did it do? Was it the dialogue? Was it the, the interaction? Like, for example, this movie, Break Em Run, was one of my favorite movies. The film is, is shot, just, it's like a handful of locations, but the way it uses flashbacks to create this disconnect between the British Empire as it sees itself and as these Australians saw the empire, and the way it used imagery to sort of mock the British, right? So... Whenever something preposterous was happening, there'd be a, a takeaway to this literal gazebo with a British brass band playing this preposterous music that just yeah. made zero sense. Right. Right. So it was, or the other thing um, in the in the, the Zulu war film, it there was this con we don't they didn't use the word then, but there's this constant tone policing that's going on. So, for example. It's basically about, so the British and the Boers in this movie pair up to take on the Zulu. And then after the Zulu are defeated, then the British will take on the Boer in, in the Boer War. And uh, so one of the irritating set of actors is this father-daughter missionary. Now, these films are not nice to women. Women are almost always used to for some purpose, which is not flattering. 
So the missionary's daughter is like this racist, annoying, whiny, I mean, just looking for her to get shot, right? She's just made to be that irritating. And she'll say obnoxious and offensive things so that her father can say, well, no, daughter, these are not savages. In fact, there are arranged marriages happening all over Europe. The Zulu girls, they're marrying men who are warriors. European women are merely getting rich men. What is worse, marrying a man of courage or a man of money? Right. So she, every time she opens her mouth, she says something ridiculous. Or there'll be a British soldier making an incredibly horrible racist comment about the Zulus, and there'll be a boar who pops up. And it's important that it's a boar who says this. Um, and the boar will say, oh, if they're so savage, why is it that they're kicking your ass? You know? So they have these dialogues that deliberately set up conversations about racism. It's, it's, it does it surprisingly well for as irritating as some of the exchanges are. And so it kind of, you don't have to, you don't have to think too hard about it because <laughs> that wasn't the intent. The intent was not to make you think hard about it. Right. It's in your face. It's in your face. But the guy who made it was fascinating. He was an American communist and, um, he was run out of Hollywood because he was a communist and he didn't want to run out of his colleagues. He goes to the UK. He's really fascinated with the Welsh. And this particular movie is about an all Welsh unit. Hmm. Incidentally, the Welsh battle song is the music to which the Georgetown alma mater is made. So if you watch this movie and you, you're like, why does that sound so familiar? Wow. Because you will have heard it at graduation. That's yeah, so he becomes like the Zulu expert. He makes about four films with this Welsh collaborator of his. But the movie is just magnificent. You haven't seen it. It's on, you can see it. It's on YouTube. It's just, it's just a magnificent film. Your syllabus is on the website, right? Um, is it public? Well, there's a public version of it on my website. Okay. ChristineFair.net. But obviously we don't publish all the classes or anything like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, the, the syllabus itself but is For public. people who want to access the mm -hmm. content... Oh, yeah. And I also put my syllabi up on um, on educational websites, like, um, now I'm blanking it out, like, what is it, um, academia.edu yeah. and ResearchGate. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of scholars do that, and it's on repositories. Um, so there are a bunch of repositories where scholars put their syllabi so we can share and get ideas. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of that, because I've learned, I've benefited tremendously. I, I probably reviewed, like, 80 different syllabi. And putting this together, and um, the one of the premier scholars on um, um, section nine, not, not section nine, district nine, district nine, because section nine was the apartheid South Africa. Uh, I had this an extended conversation with one of the South African scholars who is a proponent that it is blackface. So I've I've had so I've met some interesting scholars that yeah. I never would have before, especially if they're writing in non. English journals. Right. I mean, his, his was English, but um, there are a lot of others that were like in French and in places where I had to ask them, "Do you have a translation for this?" So it was good. It was it was fun prepping for it. It's cool. Thank you so much yeah, for once you. again uh, welcoming me, welcoming me into your home to record this this episode. I do want to ask a question mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, I haven't prepared you for this, so if you yeah, want, yeah. if it's you totally want to cool. take a step. <laughs> 
you're more than welcome to. It's a my concluding question for every episode. What is the greatest threat to U.S. national security today? So, I'm um, I'm always very hesitant to, especially in the, the current environment, to bring current political affairs into discussions. But since this is not in my classroom, I have to be honest. It is watching what's happened to the United States. Um, that the DNI was replaced because the DNI gave a statement. That happened today yes. on February 21st. Is that what today's date is? Yeah. The 21st? Yeah, it happened very recently. Um, because one of the staffers briefed Congress on Russian interference in our election, and we just swap out the DNI because the leadership doesn't like it. I've been very disturbed by the normalization of corruption. Um, Blagojevich and other white-collar criminals. Roger Stone. Roger Stone. Um, he, hasn't, he wasn't pardoned today, was he? No, he was sentenced to... Yeah, he was sentenced. But yeah, I'm talking about the pardon. Oh, you mean today? I mean the pardons. Mm, not to my knowledge. Yeah, the, the pardoning of white-collar criminals. The fear... I mean, the so, you know... My politics are complicated, right? Um, I would have voted for McCain in 2000 had the Republican Party not sabotaged him. And I supported the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So I'm, I'm not... People probably think of me as like some kind of like flaming liberal, but anyone who knows me knows <laughs> flaming liberals don't think I'm so flaming or liberal. So, but the Republican Party, I may have had very serious... In fact, on foreign policy, I've probably been more of a traditional Republican. Right? So I'm one of those people who don't have a party. I don't like the domestic politics of the Republicans, and um, and I haven't traditionally liked the foreign policy of Democrats. But the Republican Party has basically become this Trump party, and the normalization of the dishonesty is all politicians lie. Bill Clinton, when they called him the Teflon president, there's nothing more Teflon than our current situation, and it is. I'm, I'm at a loss um, that we now have a person is the director of national intelligence who has no intelligence credentials. He, I'm, I'm speechless. Um, and he is there solely to make sure that there are no more briefings on, say, Russian interference or whistleblowers. I've been very disturbed by the demand that we not protect whistleblowers. Right? I mean, so it is, I think we are in a, an incredibly dark place because we have a system that I think many people thought would be protected by our institutions. But what we've actually seen is that all of our institutions at the deepest and most profound levels have been corrupted. And if we had a population that cared, this would not have happened. And this is part of the impetus for this course. It is because of the way media is organized, it is now possible to only get information which confirm your bias. Right? Yep. And Go on Twitter and follow the people that you like. Right. We, we become like these, I mean, we're like these vertically integrated echo chambers. And when I was a kid... There were, there were actually laws that prevented you from saying things that were untrue. There were laws that prevented 
than um, news channels from saying things that were explicitly partisan. You couldn't, when I was a kid, believe it or not, um, it was regulated that you couldn't have volume jumps. So when you switch for from commercials, your, for commercials, you yeah. couldn't have volume jumps. Now you have volume jumps all over the place, right? You have to like, you know. so we saw the news that we needed to know, not what we wanted to know. And so from about, and this has been facilitated by the collapse of traditional journalism around the second Gulf War and the move from investigative journalism to access journalism. So what you really care about is access. Access is cheap. It doesn't require resources. And then that access becomes very partisan. Um, in the first Gulf War, we didn't have MSNBC. But there's, there's a lot of um, scholarship that looks at, for example, how the introduction of Fox News has really changed American habits and thinking. A great paper from 2004 that just asks, that uses survey data that asks respondents in the United States three basic questions. Did Saddam Hussein have nuclear weapons? Uh, did he have anything to do with 9-11? And did he use chemical weapons on U.S. troops? These are no, these are not gray. And they correlated the propensity to get those questions right or wrong with the primary source of news consumption. There were so few people that got their information from public media and print media that they had to be clumped together for tabulation sake. So it probably wouldn't surprise anyone that the people who got them all right, those who got their media, their news from public media and newspapers were more likely to get all of those answers right. It probably wouldn't surprise people that those who identified Fox News as their primary news source were more likely to get all of them wrong. But if you actually looked at where CNN consumers and ABC and NBC consumers, they were very likely to get one, if not two, out of three questions wrong. So this isn't just a story about Fox News, right. Fox, you know, let's unfox <laughs> this. Yeah. This is about the overall degradation of the quality of content in our media. And that means we're screwed because we are not making, when we go to the ballot box, we're not making informed decisions. So that coupled with, and I, and I think that's what has enabled this current situation to, to take place. If Obama had done this, I, I just, I mean, he would have been impeached so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, just to be very blunt, this current situation, this Reject. I mean, we have a president who has told his intelligence personnel that if you tell me things I don't want to hear or I don't believe, your career is in jeopardy. What do we do with this? And this is this is the most. I mean, the most important thing about being the most important person in the world is that you also have at your disposal the most competent, capable, resource intelligence community. And, you know, to be blunt, I mean, that's how we got into the Iraq war, was that we had a president that was cherry-picking intelligence. It's not that we didn't know better. It's just that they were cherry-picking the intelligence that they wanted to hear. So I was really nervous about where the Iran thing was going. We, all we know is that we were not told the true story about Iran yep. and Soleimani. So um, North Korea is another case where we are not being told the full story. 
So I'm, 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 this is like, um, this is like the George W. administration, but worse in so many ways. Because George W. never, people accuse him of being a racist. I don't think he was a racist. He had the most diverse cabinet that I can think of in recent history. I think even more diverse than Obama's cabinet. Hmm. Right? People always accuse him of being a racist. And when he retired, he said that was the most painful thing for him to hear because people thought he was a racist. I don't think he was a racist. I just think he was easily harnessed by Cheney. Yeah. But um, this is obviously a president that wolf whistles to anti-Semites and to racists and doesn't condemn terrorists by white extremists who are right now the most and the most significant source of threat to us, not from Muslims or others. Now this is I'm I go to bed at night constantly I don't have to, I, I have to sleep with sleeping pills because um, I don't know what kind of country this is gonna be if what is likely to happen in twenty twenty happens. If I had kids I would have already left. And and I'm and I'm white, right? People only think I'm Jewish and thus the, the Nazis target me. But I can't imagine um, being a minority in this country. I just can't. Yeah. So I'm about as privileged as it gets. Um, I'm a virtual white lady. And I'm terrified for this place. Okay, to leave on that note. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what we Thanks for joining me on the show. The Security Studies Podcast is hosted at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. For more information, go to css.georgetown.edu. Thanks for listening.